This is the Common Sense Podcast presented by Tamar. I'm your host, Tamar Weinberg, founder and CEO of Tamar, and I will be talking to people of all walks of life who have suffered adversity and overcome to rise above the ashes and now make self-care and wellness an absolute priority. Hi, everybody. I am so, so excited to bring to you a friend of mine from the industry and the founders community, Gail Khan. Thank you. Thank you so, so much for joining. Where are you located? So I live presently near the UN. So in Midtown Manhattan. Sweet. And I, I know New York City in particular has been hit pretty hard. I just was reading about uh, how a friend of mine has seen has, has kind of perceives it as a ghost town. What's your experience right now? Well, um, New York is definitely, we don't have enough, uh, there's not as much activity, but the truth is the traffic is up. Uh, I live right off the corner of 2nd Avenue, and when I see more traffic and more people on the street, things are happening. Uh, We did uh, have tremendous uptick in this area of homeless people. Uh, because our mayor has decided to use some of the hotels that are not being used by diplomats for homeless people, and when they're not in there, when they're not in, they're out on the street. So um, it's been a. We have a lot more people on the street uh, doing interesting things. Uh, it depends what you where you shine your lens, but it, it's kind of frightening that there's a lot more people who are doing drugs on the street, having sex on the street. Uh, and uh, drinking. Uh, so, you know, I mean, clearly, and also we are supporting them because, you know, as liberal people, people feel so terrible. So we just, you know, give blankets and money and tents and all that kind of stuff. But I'm not sure that's the answer to help people when they're in need. Right. Yeah. I've been reading about that. I've been in- invited to a few, and I, I, I live outside the city, uh, but I've been, invited to, I've been invited to a few Facebook groups where, uh, mothers young mothers in particular feel threatened and yeah i mean it's like bringing it's literally like bringing bringing the world uh, like bringing the 70s back that's what it feels like it's it's not funny because some people tend to you know i mean i know um i lived in california for over 20 years and and you know we have a there was this there is an extreme problem in california it's just extreme um with homeless people and you know the thing is as a country i think we have um the ability to decide if we want to help people so if people are drug addicts they need to go to drug rehab if people are alcoholics they need to either attend aa or you know go to rehab uh people who you know fall off the wagon lose their job and all of a sudden they're homeless on the street you know let's try and help them get jobs and you know get back on their feet but there's also a group of people that don't want to do any of those things they just want to be on the street uh, I've got friends that have worked in that community for a long time, 30 years of experience with homeless people. and uh, But we, we have to make decisions, and some of them are tough. And, you know, we either help people or, you know, it, it's, it's very disconcerting when they, are in dis, you know, disrupt businesses and frighten people and do things because we're people too. So what about our rights? Right, you right. Know? Yeah, it's difficult. It's difficult. Right now, it's just an incre- incredibly crazy time. That's a perfect storm of having it get worse. But, you know, talk to people in California. There's a big lawsuit right now in California of a a homeowner suing the city of Los Angeles because he can't get out of his house. He can't use his garage because people have built tents in front of his garage and he can't use his garage. That's crazy. (laughs) 
This is insane. We live in like the craziest time. I can't say like, you know, what a what a time to be alive. And like, there's obviously pros and cons, but like seriously, what a time to be alive. This takes tremendous problem solving capabilities and people with, you know, not only compassion, but really people who are willing to bring solutions. And that's why entrepreneurs are so great because we're trying to find solutions to things. Right. And this is like, this is also, I mean, I hate to say it, but homelessness somewhat is a business opportunity for somebody. Yeah, it is. As is redefining prisons, because we've turned prisons into business in the United States. So if anybody wants to figure out, you know, how to make prison light or prison serious or, you know, whatever you want to do, art prison, uh, you know, whatever you want to do, there could be a business opportunity, but you have to be really creative and want to, so to take on the established business that's in right. that. A hundred percent. So yeah, let's talk about that. Cause you talk about, you know, um, how you're like an entrepreneur and you've worked in a very, in many different career uh, paths and like you're from the boo and now you're in the yeah. city. So yeah. tell me, tell me a little, uh, tell, tell, tell listeners about that. Yeah. So I, I originally went out to California in the late, uh, late eighties and, uh, California was still Los Angeles anyway, was still somewhat of a sleepy town. Uh, it was still kind of, you know, funky on the food side. Uh, and very much, um, you know, when you lived in, I lived in Santa Monica and, and that area, it was, you know, very sleepy surfer town. But things had not changed on Main Street, which was the main drag in Santa Monica for years and years and years. We're talking like 20, 30 years. Everything was sort of a throwback. And um, I worked in the TV business for many years. And then I, I, from television, I used to sell airtime. I got involved in buying and selling movies, scripts, finished films. I used to go to the Cannes Film Festival. And it's funny that it took... Um, a little over 30 years for Me Too movement because there has been a Me Too movement very underground since the 40s. I mean, wow. if anybody's yeah. read a Raymond Chandler book, uh, nothing has really changed. If you read Raymond Chandler and just take the dates off of when he wrote those books in the 40s, it's still the same. Right. So, yeah. you know, you have to have a sense of history. I left the film business partly because um, I can only stomach just so much of, uh, you know, men's hands on your legs and that sort of thing. But then I got into the internet business, which was even worse. <laughs> so in many ways, because it was the wild west. And when you have not to be all political, but you know, mostly the guys were starting the companies. I mean, they were getting funded. There were not that many women in technology back then, like in the middle nineties. And, uh, you know, it was so. Anyway, I did that trajectory. I was in the um, in the internet business. I worked at a very famous startup called Broadcast.com, and I worked for Mark Cuban. He was my boss. Oh, uh, we cool. got to Yahoo for 5.7 billion dollars. I was in the room when we went public. There was Mary Meeker, who was our investment banker. I mean, I went through a whole boom and bust of the first um, dot com era. And then after that, um, I decided I wanted to be an entrepreneur. Um, why? Because it's it's you're making a lot of money for a lot of people, and you're getting a fraction of it. Even stock options, no matter what, you're not getting paid what you know the owners of these companies, where you're bringing millions of dollars in to close deals and partnerships and that sort of thing. So I started my first research company in '99. Um, and worked with a partner doing that for a couple of years and realized that what I needed to do when I started another company was really build more distinction, 
the more you do your work as an entrepreneur, the more you understand how to define your category. It's not that simple. So what I learned uh, in the first few years of being an entrepreneur is that I needed more distinction and we needed more distinction. And, you know, when you I invested the second time around when I started a company in a software that I built. So, uh, you know, it's not for the faint at heart to build your own software when you're not a, you know, a technical person. But I knew what I wanted it to do. I didn't know how to get there. So. um, so we built a software, and uh, to this day, I have my own software, and it's been rebuilt many times. But I keep learning in my own business how to build my distinction, because as you work with more people and and you know different players in your world, you learn a lot more. So that right. gives more strength and impetus to continue, because then you sort of hone yourself. You're like a sculpture, and you're constantly sculpting. And that's what's fun about being an entrepreneur because you can do it for yourself as you're always do for someone else. And when you're in a bigger corporation, it's much more glacial. It doesn't move as fast. When you're an entrepreneur, it's like, you know, you're on that horse and it's just running through the, you know, the meadow. You you got to hold on. If you want to, you got to hold on and you just keep going because it's up and down. But, you know, I, I love it and I'm very exhilarated by what I do. That's awesome. Yeah. So it's funny because I, 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 I hear you in, in the context of kind of understanding the point of distinction. I mean, I'm a perfume brand, but I had to figure out how I'm distinctive. And then how do I distinct, distinguish myself even further? And as I tell the story, even though I'm not really officially out yet, I'm learning that there's areas like I don't necessarily feel like I'm a competitor to different perfumes. I feel like I'm a competitor to the mindfulness space, the comms and the head spaces of the world. That's extraordinarily distinctive, a lot more than I don't think there's anybody out there that can lay that same claim. Right. Uh, but that's where that's where I want to that's where I feel like that's that's where I'm carving my my path. But but if that's what you feel, then you'll build the attributes and the information exactly. and your context around that, because right. no one can tell you that you can't do that. Right. Exactly. So, I so you're carving your own path. So terrific. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Great. So, so I, ha- I have to ask you a question before we go into like the crux of the podcast here, but what's it like? I'm sure other people are going to ask this, hence my question or probably have this on their mind, but what was it like working for Mark Cuban? Well, Mark was, um, so Mark was single in those days. Okay. Uh, okay. And, uh, it was kind of like being in the wild west to a certain extent. It was very, uh, fly by the seat of your pants. Um, you know, Mark had a partner named Todd Wagner. Those two guys started Broadcast.com. And uh, Mark was just a lot more wild. I mean, the day we went public, not joking, um, it was very funny because, oh, God, um, Jerry Yang and, you know, his partner were in the room. And they were so crazy because Mark had two champagne bottles he was drinking out of on both sides of his mouth and, you know, jumping up and down. Mm-hmm. He just made five, half of $5.7 billion dollars. And because he was kind of a wild sort of person, they made sure that they corralled themselves around him. There were security people. <laughs> he should not touch anyone. Do you understand what <laughs> I'm He should not, you know, as people were, uh, let's put it this way. When I worked at broadcast.com, we would go to meetings and they would make us share rooms, which I always thought was really pretty crazy. And there was every other week a girl from Dallas, because that's where the main office was. I was virtual in California, would pull up her shirt and show you her new boobies. It was a kind of a wild company. Yeah. Uh, 
we got uh, notes on our desk when we would go to meetings. If you have drug and alcohol issues, call this number. I mean, it was just, um, it was kind of like crazy Dallas, like, you know, everybody popping into people's beds. You got thrown out of your bed at night. It was just a crazy, wild scene. And Mark, obviously, you know, it comes from the top, does it not? I mean, I, I can't say I saw him in bed with anybody or do anything, but it was just a, it was a wild time in yeah. uh, broadcast.com. Yes. I guess, I guess that's what motivated the plot line behind the TV series Silicon Valley, because it sounds very similar. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a, it was, it was at a time where, where, the, just it was such a runaway train. Uh, there was so much money. Also, what's interesting, and uh, there's no there there. I mean, we didn't own any content. What did we do? We just rebroadcasted things that were already there. I mean, he did come up with the idea of doing the Victoria's Secret runway show, which really changed the nature of his business and became a case study at Harvard and, and did break down the... Uh, but when you say the internet, it broke down their group of servers. That's what that meant, which people, if you're not technical, don't understand. You need to have capacity to run you know, a lot of servers, and we didn't have enough servers. So when you say you broke the internet, what, around the universe? No, just our group of servers. So yeah. anyway. It was a it was it was a fun and interesting time and and uh, and working at Yahoo was less fun and interesting because you know they 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 were search they were in search of business and the truth is Yahoo had bought GeoCities also do you remember that company yeah Geo yeah I, I had I, I didn't I never had a GeoCities site but I'm very familiar but, but, but GeoCities was the first personalized homepage so if you have any perspective. GeoCities was a precursor to um, Facebook, except yeah. it was HTML. So if you had married the technology that Broadcast.com had, which was video broadcasting, which kind of been a precursor to YouTube, and then you had Facebook, you could have built out some businesses that were very interesting. But clearly, when there's no vision involved, you just buy these businesses for billions of dollars and just squash them. I mean, it's only money, right? Right, right. <laughs> yeah, interesting. Very interesting. I guess I guess it doesn't surprise me. And as soon as you said that, I'm like thinking, you know, that was like Prince Harry. He had that reputation. Like he was like the party guy, and then he chilled and he calmed down. So I guess that's what you see. And that's like I watch Shark Tank pretty pretty religiously now. And uh -huh. it's like eventually everybody tames. So some do and some don't. It just depends on you know. I mean, there's plenty of people that don't. I mean, look at Conrad Black. I mean, there's plenty of people. <laughs> even when they get married and do it you know come on sure, Rupert that's true. so some people want to live forever like you know want to return their their in their youth forever yeah i mean it depends how many times you want to get married uh, men can have children till they're 95 i mean that's you true. know yeah <laughs> they're luckier today. than us yeah so they they have different capacities and and it also depends on the money level. I mean, you know, right. women get looked down upon if you have like a, a boyfriend that's 30 years younger, but men don't. Yeah, it's very true. Very, very true. Yeah, we still have to change the way the world is seen, the perspective and the perceptions. But yeah. Um, yeah, so 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 let's shift to, I guess, you, you definitely have a story and you've kind of alluded to it and I haven't let you finish because I want to have it shared here. So I have my reaction. And my okay. my jaw drops, and you can hear my jaw drop while I while we speak. But you have a rise above the ashes, rise above adversity story, that is 
basically unfathomable. So talk tell me a little more about that because I know we we've, we've kind of touched yeah. upon it. So um, I run this business for close to sixteen years now, and about eleven years ago, um, my husband was taking my our son to a Boy Scout camp on Catalina Island. And I, my company is virtual. So one of my partners was in California. Another partner was in, uh, he used to live in Virginia. And um, so, you know, the company hummed along and, you know, but we were virtual. So my husband goes on this trip to Catalina with my son and he calls to wish me good night. <clears throat> and the next thing you know, I know the phone dies. And the thing is, it's very common in California to have bad cell reception. Uh, you know, the phone, it's constant. So I didn't think anything of it. And I'm actually at a friend's house, an old college friend of mine, and I'm going to spend the weekend with him and do uh, a makeover, okay? Because my friend is single and he needed to meet people, and so I was going to do that. And so what ends up happening was I get a call at 2 o'clock in the morning and they asked me, are you Mrs. Khan? And I say, yes. And they said, well, can you please come to this hospital in Long Beach, which is about an hour from where I am. Your husband has had a fall. I, I say, okay. And so I, I end up going to this hospital in Long Beach, which is a gated hospital because it was part of a, uh, a church. And so this hospital is now in this kind of park-like setting. Um, and I show up and it's now three o'clock in the morning and there my husband is lying on a slab and he looks like a total monster uh, because my husband had just fallen off a 42 foot cliff. And it was a very interesting convergence of things because it was a moonless night and that plays a huge part in why he survived because he fell from this cliff onto rocks in the ocean. And if it had been a, a night where there had been waves, he would have been killed by the fact that he would have been, you know, drowned. But what had happened was when my husband fell, he was a big yogi. Uh, he did yoga every day of his life. And he managed, once he figured out he was falling, because he doesn't remember this, but it's it has to do with the injuries he sustained. He managed to fall, ball his body up and fall on one side as opposed to the back. Because if he had fallen on his neck, he would have broken his neck and his back and he would have been dead that way but because he fell only on his right side he had all these other injuries but needless to say when you fall what happens is your body goes into complete shock and you swell up to three times your size right right so there i am with at three o'clock in the morning with the trauma surgeon i didn't know what those are there's like a, the doctor is like a humpty dumpty man he like puts you back together again and he yeah. sort of tells going on and he proceeds to tell me that you know they've taken all these x-rays they don't know the extent of the injuries but you know these are the things that are wrong first thing was that my husband when he fell clearly broke his jaw and his jaw moved to the other side of his body practically hitting his shoulder and so all his teeth came out and what happened was the worst part that's not the big deal you can put a jaw back together again but he had swallowed teeth in his lungs Oh, wow. so I'm cringing, the by the way, you, you can so, see me cringing, but the listeners can't see. So. Right. so the first operation, which I did not know about that we had to do not once but twice was called a bronchoscopy, 
which is how you have to go into the lungs and remove any foreign matter because you immediately get pneumonia. Your teeth were filled with bacteria. So anyway, that was first. And then, you know, there's a brain injury. I mean, there's a person who's completely out. We're talking like a slab, a slab. And you're in intensive care, and all we're doing is operation after operation, putting a jaw back together, wiring a jaw, you know, setting broken bones, and then, you know, constantly looking at what's going on with the head. Because, you know, if a person's out, you want to know, are they going to come back? Are they not going to come back? What's going to happen? And this is going to sound like a shock, but I called a friend of mine because, I mean, here I am. I, here's my husband. I have a kid. At the time, I had an adopted kid, and that's a whole other story, which I had just adopted. And You didn't tell me that you, he was at a Boy Scout thing, so... Your, your child, your son has had experienced this. So how, how, how close was he to your husband with this T-wall? Did he see everything? No, so my son, my, my husband had walked away from the Boy Scout camp. Oh. So when they found this out and how my husband got found in the first place was some people from um, the Boy Scout camp were learning shortwave radio and they'd gone to the cliff because that was the only place you could get reception. Wow. And then they hear some noise and they were able to radio Baywatch and they came in on a small boat and put my husband on a surfboard and then they got him to a little to their little island and they airlifted him to the mainland so, so he when was they, when they say they heard a small noise was he like moaning was or did they hear a radio heard a moan they they looked oh, down and they heard a moan so yeah. i mean the fact that it and and the fact that it was moonless so there were no waves coming because if there was so you, a wave, yeah because you wouldn't hear anything right, right you wouldn't hear anything and it was a moonless night so it was completely still and i have photos because the people who picked him up sent me all these pictures including the ones where the blood's on the rock i mean the whole nine yards i have oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. i have it in daylight i have it at nighttime i have everything so um so, and the Boy Scouts just kind of kept my son. So somebody, the troop leader took him home. At this point, I have not seen my kid. I haven't done anything. I'm with my adopted daughter, you know, I'm, I, and my friend took that. So I'm in, I'm the only person because I have to make all these decisions, blood transfusions, what's going on, what can I sign, you know, because then it's 24 seven. And then they realize I'm I'm there for like a day. They need to feed me because like, like I'm, I'm just talking and, you know, filling out forms, you know, it's a hospital, you know? Right. So uh, then, then what happens is that, um, you know, so we go through this period and there's so many things that go on in hospitals. I mean, crazy stuff. And what I realized that most hospitals in the United States, smaller ones do not have trauma surgeons. Trauma surgeons are only in places where there are a lot of gunshot or victims or people in, in very serious accidents because they're an expensive person to keep on staff. Right. So they're kind of like butterflies. They come in and then they leave, right? Yeah. I have familiarity from Grey's Anatomy. So. Right. Okay. Right. So what I realized as we're going through this, um, I realized that, gee, this hospital is really not that equipped. And one night when my husband is getting this very long surgery, like an eight hour surgery, and I'm in this little waiting room, some crazy person accosts me in this waiting room and starts yelling at me that he's going to wear my teeth around his neck and frightening me. And I'm reading a newspaper and I just keep it up in front of my face while this man is spewing. And eventually he just leaves. And I think, oh my God, 
I can't, I can't, I'm unsafe myself. Like, I can't keep coming to this place. And I go to the administrations of the hospital, and they say, you know what, we're going to have to get you a security guard to walk from the hospital to the parking lot. Because that first night, there was a gunshot victim in the parking lot, like somebody had murdered gangland style in this hospital. Because yeah. this hospital was in a very, very compromised, very difficult area, okay? So then I start to realize this is going to be a crazy ride. Do you know? I mean, because every day I'm now driving almost an hour and a half back and forth from my house to this hospital every day. I did not miss. I only missed one day because I got sick myself and they and I my friends told me I shouldn't go to the hospital. So my husband, after three weeks of being in an out coma, begins to wake up. He has no idea who he is. He doesn't know where he is. He doesn't know me. He doesn't know anything. Wow. So my husband gets transferred from ICU to like the, you know, like another floor. But the thing is, what I didn't know until after the fact was they never changed his medical protocol. So, you know, his medicines, water levels, all the things. I'm not a doctor, but all the things you're supposed to sort of change when a person's waking up. Okay. And then the other thing, because my husband's mouth was completely wired because he had broken his jaw, right? He can't talk. So I start doing my own therapy with him, even though they were screaming at me the entire time not to do any of this. I kept showing him pictures of the family. I kept asking him, like, do you know who I am? I'd ask him. He couldn't write. He couldn't do anything because he's also now chained down to the bed because they don't want him to touch his mouth and he has a catheter and he's really wired up with a lot of stuff. And then the neurologist would come in once a week and ask him what day of the week it was. This was my favorite question. What day of the week is it, Mr. Khan? And of course my husband would go Well, first of all, how would, if he doesn't know who he is, do you think he knows what day of the week it is? And then I realized, gee, this is a really crazy thing to be asking somebody who's just had a head injury, doesn't even know his name and what day of the week it is. And I started to question the neurologist. Well, clearly nobody liked me in the hospital because I was starting to question protocol. Right. <clears throat> the trauma surgeon calls me in, screams at me, says he's gonna throw me out, is gonna bar me from the hospital. And I said, bring it on. You know, like, I don't really care. And so what I began to realize was that this hospital was a, a hospital that got a lot of funding from the city. And a lot of the patients in the hospital, believe it or not, were prisoners or people who had ankle bracelets on, you know, meaning that they had to be watched. They were prisoners and that I was a great person to be in this hospital. My husband was because we were paying full freight because we had insurance. Okay. Right, right. Anyway, the story gets more phantasmagoric about the mistakes and things that go on in the hospital, but the, the best part of the story was I stage an intervention. I come down and I decide that I'm going to start documenting what's going on with this hospital, and I come in with a camera around my neck, okay? Hmm. Now, granted, I've been taking notes on my phone. I, I, I had notes because I'm very anal about stuff like that so I'm 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 googling every medicine he's taking and I'm saying why is he taking an upper and a downer in one one medical run you know like all this stuff and so I come down with the camera and they won't let me in the hospital 
and I say, are you for real? And I make such a scene. I'm talking about I am screaming and I'm flailing. And then they cart me off like I'm a prisoner myself into this, you know, conference room. And I, I cause then, and also I have to add that I was calling the head of the hospital every day. Right. And, and making, you know, like I did know a lot of people. I knew people in radio. I knew people in television. I'm going to tell my story. And if they don't release my husband from this hospital to go to a better hospital where he can get some rehab and not just be chained to the bed, I'm going to go to the press about this. Okay. So then they drag me into this room and the whole hospital staff is there and all the head nurse and nurses and doctors. And and I I don't know what happened to me, but I was really, I must've been possessed. (laughs) Stand up on my chair with this camera and I start screaming but like like i'm a crazy woman like right. I, I don't even know well, i have eventually this. you hit rock like it's like your own like rock bottom where you just you're just like it's this isn't this isn't he's not getting the adequate care right we don't know what's right. going on right. things and, need to make you need to make progress you need to do crazy things right. in order to achieve crazy things husband, you know he's my husband and i i wasn't gonna take it anymore kind of thing so i just lost it and um what happens is so crazy so after this the head nurse slips me a note, like not that moment, but she sees me and slips me a note and she goes, you gotta get him out of here, okay? And then it was like, then I, then I had wings, then I was done. Then I was like, I spent hours on the phone trying to find my caseworker at, at Blue Cross because you know they don't want you to talk to the person who's running your case. And what I realized was, see if the hospital doesn't submit paperwork daily or a few or weekly about the progress of the patient they don't know what's going on and so everything is business as usual let's write off another week let's write off another week and so what i had to do is i had to enroll the staff to get their act together on the paperwork and so i hounded people to demand what was going on and i'd be like running after them i you know i wouldn't let it go so finally I was able to get them to get their paperwork together so I could get a transfer, which is very unheard of to get a transfer from one hospital to another. So what ends up happening, and this is my husband's first memory, I love this one. I finally get him this transfer and the ambulance gets lost on the way to Cedar sinai which is the most famous hospital in Los Angeles. And my husband remembers that because he remembers they're going, where is it? It only takes up three city blocks in the middle of Los Angeles. It is the hospital and they could. Yeah, you can't miss it, but you did miss it. So anyway, what happens is my husband gets to Cedars and um, then they realize that he could have died just from being uh, dehydrated. They had not given him enough hydration in the time. So anyway, then we're at Cedars for another couple of weeks. He gets robbed at Cedars Sinai. His nurse robbed him of his cell phone and his laptop. And yeah. uh, this is right before Christmas. Uh, and then I actually make an appeal at Cedars telling them I'm going to sue them because, you know, they realize that it is someone on their staff. Uh, they finally give me the money to buy this stuff again. And then my husband gets released. And then there's more to that story. But anyway, it so was. So, how's he doing now? Yeah. So it's 11 years later, my husband, you know, has some residual, obviously, issues. There's, um, you know, a lot of nerve damage. There's issues with eyes and stuff like this. Cognitively, he's, you know, terrific considering what he went through. 
Um, you know, he's in very good shape. There's some memory issues, but not tremendous. Uh, Does he, did he, because he said he didn't know you at all. Does he, did, was, did he have to relearn that? Was he able to recall it eventually? Well, had to relearn a lot, and then a lot just came back on its own. I mean, the brain is really pretty crazy because my husband always had like a little tick, just like a little thing. And for almost two years, he'd lost that tick. And then one day it just like came back. Oh, I mean, wow. there's certain weird things that the brain just kind of rewires. Some of it, not. I mean, like a lot of what happened to his eyes is very interesting because you have a lot of optic nerves that kind of move your eyes. They're kind of like hair, like the, the nerves are so skinny. They're like your hair. And because they were compromised by the brain injury, some of that just did not come back. That's also one of the reasons we moved to New York because he has no peripheral vision and he can't see up. So because they didn't bounce back. I mean, no matter what you do, they're not going to come back. I mean, certain things come back. Some things don't come back. It's, um, you can spend your life going to doctors, to be honest with you, to find out what's working, not working. I mean, essentially, he works. Do you know what I mean? He walks fine. He stands up. He remembers. Uh, some things not. Like, he remembers none of this. None of it. Doesn't remember the fall. Doesn't remember the hospital. Remembers nothing. And also, you have to understand, you're very drugged up a lot of the time. I mean, I'm talking about drugs. That, I mean, he hallucinated. The day I picked him up, he told me he was with John Lennon. I mean, he was completely in another world. It's hard when you're drugged uh, and you're not, and you're the one in charge. It's very complicated. Um, but needless to say, I had to keep my business going because this was my life and my husband and I worked together. So I had to keep my business going, do business calls, talk to clients, take care of these two kids, one who I had just adopted, my biological son and this adopted child, and keep my life going by myself. I mean, cause I was, you know, alone. Yeah. And uh, I figured, you know, it was a moment, I didn't even know I had it in me. All I can say is that- You just did it. You just did it, yeah. You gotta put one foot in front of the other. And what I said to you when I originally met you and, and what kept me going was I became very zen. Um, I, I blanked out absolutely everything that wasn't necessary and my mantra became chop wood carry water nothing entered that wasn't essential I didn't have I couldn't worry about it it didn't matter it didn't matter if the people who left food on my doorstep if every day it was mac and cheese for six weeks it just nothing mattered it just right. mattered to get through this and know that there was going to be another side and that slowly we rebuild because even when my husband was released from the hospital, he couldn't walk. Right. I mean, a wheelchair, and he yeah. was like a you know my husband's over six feet and he was like 140 pounds. You yeah. know, I'm you know you're with somebody who's like this is your husband. Oh my God, you know it's like it's a skeletal you know person. And and so it was you know it was form it was it was humbling. Uh, let's just put it that way. So yeah, definitely I, not an easy thing, but. Look at yeah, the fact that, you know, you're here and you're telling the story and you're still like, I mean, it's definitely something that, that I would say is it's, that's extraordinary. Like, it's just so trying on the psyche. It's trying on the everything, physical, mental, everything about yeah. it. And Yeah, and, I mean, at, at time in that sense, it's very interesting. Like right now, time seems to be speeding up. But when you're in something like that, time is glacial. 
yeah. you know, it's really slowly. Yeah, and, I understand. And, yeah, it forces you to concentrate deeply. Right. Uh, and so, you feel like it won't end, but eventually it does. And you're yeah, like, yeah. yeah. As, as every, that's why when you have, like, as an entrepreneur, leading it back to being an entrepreneur, when you have really bad times in your business and things are not happening, you just know that it's a period of end. Yeah. I mean, you can't take it personally. It just happens. Right. Yeah. It, it's the same way I feel like, you know, when I've been in the depths of my depression, I always thought it's never ending. But I look back and I'm like, you know, I hope I can have the same resilience and strength that I have now. So totally understand that. Yeah, so you talked about Zen, so I think that's probably a self-care ritual. Tell me a little more about your self-care rituals. Well, at that time, what I would do was I would make sure, uh, I know it sounds silly, but that I would eat. You know, it's something that you're just, I mean, I'm a very, I'm a foodie person. Food is a big part of my life. I love food. I love creating it. I love making it. It was just very hard to have any kind of relationship with like nurturing because I was just so like fried. Um, sleeping was really tough too to, to sleep. Um, and so what I did was I would just force myself to try and keep as much of a normal life. Like, you know, at the end of the day when I would leave my husband in the hospital, I was the last person I would leave, I would go home, I would have some food. I'd put the kids to bed, I'd go to my room, I'd read a book, I, I would. I was so exhausted, it was pretty easy to sleep, but then, you know, you'd have to get up and start the whole thing again, it was just this, like, cycle, and I, I, I really tried very hard, and I was very blessed with some, what I learned about that period also, is not the closest people to you are going to take care of you, it's the most bizarre strangers that pop out of nowhere. It's true, so uh, true that just come to your aid. I mean, people were so kind, but it was not the people who were closest to me at all. Right. Um, yeah, you're, you're it surprises you. you. You kind of, I don't know if you learn who your real friends are, but you learn who can, well, yeah, it's hard. It's hard to understand what how, what to make of it. Yeah, I, I, can't ex I can't explain that, but people who I didn't know became, and I still don't even know some of them. I tried to write thank you notes to everybody at the end, but just people left stuff for me and took care of me in ways that were, showed up that were unbelievable uh but not the people that knew us yeah it, <laughs> the dynamic is so weird like maybe they just it's just mentally difficult to grasp what yeah, they what yes, they what they their can't. expectations are the requirements of them are but yeah yeah they couldn't do it but i mean this 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 really and that, and that was terrific and i just sort of whatever came my way that felt right i just embraced it right. uh, you, you have to yeah you have to. it's your own it's your own self-preservation yeah. Yeah, you can't judge, you can't decide you want, you like, you this. It just is. And you take what you get and you, you and and you have it feed you. And to be honest with you, um, I have a friend that's a psychic and I called him right away to ask him if my husband was gonna die. Cause I, I just wanted to get his opinion. And he said, No, he's not gonna die. But you just have to go through this. Yeah. You know, and so that just gave me complete I know it sounds absolutely crazy. But it, I just knew that we just had to go through this. Yeah, interesting, and we, interesting. And we were going to work it out. Because I felt it, because I'm very intuitive myself, and I felt it. And, um, yeah, it was, uh, and it was just the anniversary of the death, because, I mean, of the fall and everything. And when I say the death, it was death of our old life. But, right. you know, it, it was um, it was just the anniversary, like, a few days ago, 11 years. And, uh, uh 
you know, you just do what you have to do. I and and I'm telling you that it. I mean, if this is a metaphor for so many things that we go through in life that we think we can't handle, and uh, it's your choosing to a certain extent if you can handle it or not. Right. You have to dig deep within yourself um, and find and find some dignity in it also because. Um, one of my favorite books is uh, *Man's Search for Meaning* by Viktor Frankl, and uh, it's, a, it's a very, very. I've been told to read that a lot. There's a lot of the self-help books that I read, very re- references him a lot. Nothing, nothing compares to that book, because what this man went through and what he saw, and to find dignity and strength. Right. So he's in the Holocaust. For those of you who have never yeah. read that, he went through like the worst of the concentration camps and then some and he wrote a book about it and he right. wrote a book about it and he, it was never about being bitter yeah it was about finding grace and and strength in the human condition and helping people right and he was a doctor in the in the concentration camps i mean he did have an opportunity to leave but he could not have left with with his they wouldn't let his parents leave so he decided to stay and it is truly, truly, it, he's never whines, never says why me, never says anything, just how you can find strength in the most difficult situations. It's such and, an appropriate thing for now as we're all suffering through, like we say, why are we all living through COVID? Like, I mean, just tying it to something that is a little more relatable to now. Right. Like, you know, like I keep saying to myself, what a time to be alive. I don't say it, like, I think it's, it's, like the biggest it's a blessing but like yeah it's sort of a curse too but it's a blessing right. and you can make it a blessing and i mean i don't think he's saying that because i haven't read it but i've certainly refer, ref, read the references right. i mean everybody like i'm sure thousands of people have referenced him because such an inspirational yeah. thing it's definitely on my to-do list i'm reading a lot of other books on happiness and self-wealth right now that no i i can understand but in his in his way it is to find the happiness honestly right. i mean the fact that he would see the sky one day made him very happy right you know like a patch of blue sky or he saw a bird i mean it doesn't take much and and we have to as people redefine a lot of what you know what we're driven by and what is happiness and what is really peace and um you know things that are you really value and 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 it's within yourself i mean i think everybody has it you know you have to decide it's, if- it's it's about it's 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 it comes down to mindset because yeah it's 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 within everybody but you really yeah. do have to think it and you have to will it yeah no you have to you have to well that's where you have to understand where you're you have to have your, your strength and and i think that you know it's very easy to like melt like a puddle but the thing is, we have it in us to be strong, right. and you have to find it within yourself. And you can. It's like just some kind of discipline. And for some reason, I have it, or I found it in myself, and I realize I, you know, can use it. And I use it in my business all the time. I mean, because yeah. you have to always say no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. So let me let me let me let, ask you one final question. I guess I would call right. it the common sense question. If we can tell, I guess maybe twelve years ago, if we can go back to Gail from twelve years ago and ask and give her a piece of advice. What would you tell her? Oh boy, that's <laughs> I love the loaded question. I always I love the reaction. Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting one. Um, well. 
I, 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 and I'm still working on it. So it's not like I, I've got it down. Oh, so, no one, you never have an answer to this. That's, that's a, so I, I think the thing is, is that it's really just to lighten up. I mean, everything is about just making it all much lighter right? Um, because it, we just have to be freer. I mean, honestly, is to enjoy as much as possible. I mean, even in the most hideous, profound ways, things that we don't like, we have to find some enjoyment in it. I mean, truly, it's all part of the experience. Yeah. We can't always get what we want. That's just not, you know, obviously Mick Jagger can sing that and he knows it. But you know what I'm saying? It's like you just don't always get what you want. And we have to just be happy. I mean, with whatever we get. And and not and and the thing is, I'm I'm. It was very interesting living in a place like Malibu. Uh, we ended up there for many funny reasons, but it had to do with school and my and all that because we found a school we really liked and we ended up moving there. Um, but when you live in a place where there's such two things: profound beauty and prof and unbelievable wealth, and you know we were not like in that really wealthy crowd. You can't compare yourself to people. You have to just kind of laugh and find the humor in it all. Right. And it's hard for people because we're in a race to get there, wherever there is. We're all in that race to be there. So I'm just saying, I think that it's a wonderful thing that um, to lighten up. I think that's the thing that I would say myself for 12 years that I'm still learning is to accept no, I, I truly think that we just have to enjoy the journey, you know, yeah. the good, the bad, the ugly, just just lighten up and enjoy the journey. And it's something I work on all the time. I mean, even just the littlest things of enjoying good coffee or having breakfast with my husband or getting a phone call from my son or, you know, winning a new job or learning something that I'm excited about learning. Um, I, I try and celebrate all the things uh, that I do as much as I can and yeah. give that as a gift to myself. And that makes me happy. I hear you. I love it. I love it. I was just, I was just reading, it came out research uh, in the New York times came out a few weeks, about two, three weeks ago about all walks, A W E walks. And if you take a walk, even on your regular like path where you normally would take a walk, and you just try to appreciate the beauty of what happens around you, it it helps you over time. There's a longitudinal um, benefit to it. So it's all about, you know, yeah, lightening up and 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 I'm really appreciating what's around you and kind of it like it's it's all about mindfulness, anchoring yourself, noticing yeah. what's in the moment. Yeah, I mean, even you know, like in New York City, you. Look at the new building a new way and look up. I mean, we always look forward, but we don't look up. Look up, you know, see what's going on. I know. I, mean, I love, I love, I love the city for that reason. I love observing. I love the buildings. I, I miss it. Yeah, you see another angle. You go into somebody's apartment or you get into a building and you see another angle. It's like, wow, I never saw that before. I mean, it's right. just, it's just, it's just appreciating. I mean, I, I took a walk in the country on Saturday. We did a nine mile hike and it was really amazing and just. Looking that the leaves on this part of the walk is this way, the leaves there are another way. It just, it doesn't matter what it is. It's just the resilience of just doing something to help yourself. Yeah, 100%. We can steward ourselves 
much more than we think we can. So anyway. Yeah, no, no, I love it. I love it. Awesome. Well, where can listeners find you and learn more about you, follow all the things? Well, um, uh, so a couple of little tidbits. I'm Gail Golightly on Instagram. I'm a bread baker, so I make sourdough bread for uh, my family, and I've been doing it for years, even before the lockdown, about five before years. Or you could have made this a big business. Yeah, I could have done that. I'm a sourdough bread baker and love that. So I, you can follow me on Instagram. But my business is called phipower.com, P-H-I-Power.com. And I'm online. So right. and I'm It's C-O-N-N, not like K-H-A-N or K-H-N. C-O-N-N. Right. And that's it. Yeah. Awesome. And LinkedIn and all that. So thank you very much for you know, this, this is fun. Yeah, yeah, thank you as well. Thank you all again for tuning in. This is your host, Tamar Weinberg of the Common Sense Podcast. Till next time.